Welcome to Eloquentia Perfecta Ex Machina, a podcast series devoted to the teaching of rhetoric and composition with and through a range of media and focused on the writing program at St. Louis University. In this episode, Amy Nelson interviews Anessa Kemna about her experiences as a blind teacher and graduate student. They discuss adapting materials for accessibility, the intersections of non-normative mental and physical conditions, and the concept of inspiration porn. Hello, I'm Amy Nelson, and today I am here with Anessa Kemna. Hello. And we are going to talk about disability in the classroom. So, Anessa, you're blind. That is accurate. <laughs> <laughs> so what I thought we might start with um, is maybe sort of the history of your experience with disability, if you want to talk about sort of growing up as a blind child and what that was like. And yeah, just give us some, some context, I guess. Okay. Yeah, I can do that. So I was born with a, a birth defect in my eyes. Uh, it's called Peter's anomaly, and the the long or the short version of that is essentially that it's a cornea a cornea defect. Um, I won't get into the the super details because corneas are gross, but essentially it just meant that from the ages of one to four, I had four to five different cornea transplants. That sounds terrible. Yeah, it kind of was. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so yeah, lots of lots of time in and out of hospitals. Um, and a lot of that was trying to, again, replace the corneas. And this is back in the, the late 80s, early 90s. So uh, all the immune suppressant drugs and stuff were not where they are now. So right. they, they rejected and things like that. So I grew up with partial vision. Uh, never enough where I was ever going to be able to drive. I couldn't, without a lot of magnification and a lot of effort, I couldn't really read um, normal print books. So grew up using, using Braille and other technologies. And then, you know... Various complications come along with getting your eyeballs operated on that much. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I would kind of guess so. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, various sort of small surgeries for that. Um, I had a bout with, a, with childhood glaucoma, which was super fun, uh, which I have mostly blocked out, I think. Um, yeah, I don't blame you. <laughs> uh, this is more like a thing I've been told than a thing I remember. So, like I said, I, I grew up with partial vision, was never going to drive or anything like that. Um, when I was 12, I woke up one day and had started uh, hemorrhaging inside of my eye. Fun. It was great. <laughs> um, waking up, looking looking through like a, a red piece of saran wrap is great. Um, so like not rose-colored glasses. No, the... no. Yeah, right. Nope, nope. <laughs> not wrong, exactly. Wrong kind of, wrong kind of glasses. Um, oh, my gosh. That sounds terrifying. Yeah, it was. Um, and so from there... We thought it was a whole bunch of different things, and it ended up so they they ended up to sort of going in, and they did another transplant and fixed some some retinal issues that were going on. Uh, had a little better vision for a little while, but then it started to sort of slowly go downhill. Um, like I said, my, my eyes have been through a lot of trauma, and they're not like the sturdiest of organs. Right, right. <laughs> um, as, so. as, as someone who has stabbed herself in the cornea with you know a little tiny metal tool thing, I totally get it. Yeah, I don't recommend that. Um, yeah, me neither. I would avoid, I would avoid that. But um, so over the next three years, uh, I lost the rest of my vision very, very slowly um, to the point where I didn't actually realize when the rest of it had sort of gone away. Um, Which is maybe kind of, I guess, a blessing over the alternative of sort of oh, having yeah. it overnight suddenly change dramatically, yes. I guess. Uh, I, I feel very fortunate in that I, uh, I, I ended up sort of losing it in the, like you said, in the best way possible. Like there, there's right. no good way to do it, but... 
it went so slowly and so gradually that I just really never knew that uh, that it had fully gone away until someone walked in and they're like, aren't you going to turn on the lights? And I was like, oh, whoops. <laughs> Thought they were on. Sorry. Uh, so, so obviously this podcast is uh, focused around teaching, mm-hmm. but I kind of wanted to maybe get a sense of your experience on the other side of, or on the other, in the other part of the classroom, as it were, as a student. Um, did you find that your... Uh, experiences in school growing up were um, extremely difficult because teachers were unable to accommodate the different needs that you had or just if you wanted to go into that a little bit. Yeah. Um, So it was it was sort of a different story between uh, grade school and college. Um, Grade school, there's actually a pretty good setup in the sense that like I my district was associated with a district that sort of had people we called them vision teachers. I feel like they're called something else more professionally. But I had someone assigned to me all 12 years of school, um, different people, who would sort of come in. uh, When I was little, they taught me to read Braille. They taught me, you know, different navigational skills, the different sort of technologies that I used as a kid. Um, In high school, I had a a super awesome and forward-looking vision person who was very aggressive about teaching me computer skills um, because oh, it is a, okay. it is a, you know, it's a little bit harder to intuitively learn a computer when you're dealing with assistive technology. Right, definitely. Um, and we sort of grew up at a point when we were all taking those computer classes, but when computers were still a little bit clunky and right, things were use. still, you know, this was the mid to late '90s. Things were still kind of developing. Right, like They're Windows not, 98 style. Yes, <laughs> the best operating system in the world. Um, but yeah, so. I was very fortunate in that sense that I had someone who was sort of looking ahead for my future and giving me the skills that ended up being super helpful in college. So in like high school, all of my materials were provided for me. You know, every every worksheet was brailled, all my textbooks were sent out for, things like that. Um, in college, that became a lot more of my job. So Yeah, I imagine that in high school and in earlier years, they probably keep those things ready to go. Um, like from the curriculum that they're using, they just have those materials available, I would I would hope. They have um, them available. Otherwise, they're pretty easy. Like they have like a, a transcription um, right, like, right. sort of center. Right. And then in college, when it's a much more kind of uh, open-ended yeah. <laughs> um, atmosphere as far as what you're taking and who you're Right, and you and you don't and have the district, uh, right, right, backing. the overhead kind of mm-hmm. support. So we we did have dis- we had a disability services center, um, and they were amazing. And it was their job, like if I if I if there was a textbook that I needed, um, if I applied for, you know, I would buy the textbook and then send it to them, and they would digitize it for me. Oh, that's kind of um, nice, especially those huge textbooks for like you know big science courses. Yeah, five thousand pages. Yeah, maybe not. That. Otherwise, um, I would also, because of that training that I had in high school, was able to sort of do that for myself as well with a scanner and my computer, which is slow. Yeah, it's a tedious process. (laughs) Yeah, it's unpleasant. Um, But, you know, it gets it done. And that's how, like, a lot of the worksheets work. So disability services would take care of, like, the big stuff and also the... um, the testing materials that I would, you know, I'm not allowed to have ahead of time. Right, right. But, um... I was in charge of, you know, I had to make sure that I requested all of it. There was no one to be like, did you get your textbooks? Did you send in your for your 
did you schedule your tests? So you're gonna have um, to hold yourself accountable for yes. taking all of that. And I'm kind of a dis- I'm a disaster. So <laughs> it was it was a little rough sometimes. I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit, but mm. I know what you mean. It can be hard to keep up with everything that you have going on, let alone things that typically you don't need or, or the yeah. average student doesn't need to kind of make sure they're asking about ahead of time. Yeah. And I, I was always a I took eighteen to twenty two credits every semester uh, of my undergrad. So oh, uh, yeah, pretty much. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so benefit of that is that it has made me, now that I have my own students who get accommodations, it has made me sort of understand what they're usually dealing with um, in the sense of, you know, coordinating their lives through another agency. Sure. So that's, that's kind of been a blessing that I didn't know was sort of coming from then. Uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely. I hadn't even thought about that. Um, okay, so then jumping ahead now, how long have you been teaching at this point? Uh, I so I, I was a teaching assistant uh, throughout undergrad for various classes. So from about 2008 to 2011, okay. I served as a, a teaching assistant. I have been the instructor of record on classes since 2012, uh, first in northern Minnesota and then here at SLU. Right. So you're at this point kind of like a veteran, we could say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Getting there, maybe. Uh, yeah. Getting there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so starting out when you were just starting out as a TA or a teaching assistant, um, did you find that the professors um, or instructors you worked with were able to sort of work with you in a way that made your position and your responsibilities doable? Did you find that you had kind of extra um, responsibilities yourself to ask for the things as you did sort of back when you were a student? Uh, they were actually really great. So the, the instructors that I worked with, by and large, were instructors that I'd had relationships with already. So okay. people whose classes I had already taken um, and who I had sort of built up a rapport with. That always helps. Yeah. <laughs> so things like, you know, they 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 let me design stuff to make it easier for me. Um, I implemented like an online office hours system for one of my professors. Oh, cool. Um, to like that would home. just be useful anywhere for mm-hmm. anyone. <laughs> it, was, it was great. I TA'd for a linguistics class once, which was a little bit tricky because they do a lot of uh, hand drawings, uh, sentence diagrams. Right, So that, right. that complicated things a little bit. But the benefit of all of this stuff actually was, like I said, the professors were super great. But the benefit of all of this was that I sort of learned how to, how I needed to function as an instructor to make it accessible for myself. Right. Yeah, so I guess that's why they make us teaching assistants first, so we yes. get a little bit of that practice, those practice runs. Um, yes. So and now I... you are an instructor here at SLU. You teach undergraduate literature and composition and rhetoric courses. Mm-hmm. Um, you do these very well. I feel like I'm always hearing good things about these <laughs> cool ideas that you have for your students, and I would love to hear just some thoughts on your experience at SLU, your experience teaching maybe literature versus rhetoric and composition, if there is a difference, um, anything that you would like to sort of tell us about. Okay. So I guess trying to keep it focused on the disability angle, uh, since that's our our podcast topic. A big thing that has actually been really great with SLU is the integration of Google Drive into sort of our everyday lives, um, Uh, because that is how I function. Like, without Drive, I'm useless. (laughs) So when I was teaching back in Minnesota... I just had my students email me assignments every time we had an assignment. Uh, it turned my inbox into an unnavigatable hellscape. Right. Um, and so getting here and realizing that not only did they have access to Google Drive, but they had actually been taught for the most part how to use it in some way, shape, or form. And maybe it's just the students getting more tech savvy. I don't know. But being able to sort of make everyone make their folders and have a place to turn things in, 
let me have the kind of organization that, you know, not being able to keep a, a file cabinet full of printouts, you know, did. Which so. is sort of debatably organized <laughs> anyway, I feel, most yeah. of the time. But it, it controls my life a little bit. I can sometimes navigate my inbox now. Hey, I can barely navigate I was gonna my say, Outlook despite... inbox, so don't feel like yeah. that's a you thing. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, now all of my inbox problems come from just what, what SLU does to us. Um, exactly. So... So yeah, so that's been a big thing. Um, the students here are, by and large, very respectful. Um, I've never had a student like challenge me on the blind thing. Um, I would be amazed to hear if that had happened. I do have some other questions in the same um, area that I'll get to in a little bit, but so that's good. That's a nice thing to know about yeah. our students. <laughs> um, I know things like, you know, I guarantee you they get away with texting when they normally wouldn't uh, because I can't see the, what they're doing well just so you know they will do it even if you can't see them or <laughs> exactly. at least they do in my class so exactly. <laughs> um so I feel like as a as a teacher with a disability I have to give my students a lot more of the like you're a grown-up benefit of the doubt type yeah of, yeah not even benefit of the doubt but just like if you want to screw yourself over that's your problem not mine right exactly I mean they um, are adults technically they so are. I feel like we should all be sort of gearing toward you know that direction yeah so things like you know if you want to be on Facebook the whole time I'm not going to be able to catch you uh, if you want to be texting on your phone the whole time, I'll never know. But don't come crying to me in April when everything's falling apart and you've missed everything I've said. Exactly. And also, uh, my general policy is something like, if your phone makes noise, I will humiliate you. Uh, That's probably fun. <laughs> my my general strategy, because again, I can't, I don't want to go over and take it and I can't just make eye contact with them. I will just stop talking for like a good 15 to 20 seconds and look at them and then move on. Um, and that seems to do the trick. So I've tried throwing pens at them. Mm. That works. I have terrible aim too, so it doesn't even matter. You just like launch something <laughs> into the room. And yeah, I tried to do. I tried to just throw candy to my students once, and that is not something I recommend when you can't see them because I <laughs> pinged someone in the forehead first first time round. Hey, and was that's like... on them. That's what they saw it coming. <laughs> but uh, I decided that maybe maybe throwing things around was not my best plan. But yeah, so. So, okay, um, on that note, I do want to hear about your, I won't call them negative experiences, um, but perhaps maybe a te teachable moment, uh, <laughs> teachable moment. So I just, Very I have to, I have to bring up um, the little anecdote that I love, that you know I love, which I think took place really before I got to know you all that well. It was maybe during my first year at SLU, but our cubicles in the TA office are adjoining, and so I overhear, you know, your student conferences and things like that. And I was sitting working on something in my cubicle and you had a student who your the conference went great, totally normal. And then they ended it by giving you one of those, um, I won't call it a backhanded compliment or an underhanded compliment, but it was sort of a, well, you know what I'm talking about. So the student basically praised you for having been so kind of surprisingly adept at your job, um, which I don't think is something that he would have said to uh, as an instructor without a disability. So I would love to hear, I, I was going to like punch through the cubicle wall and kind of, you know, give him a piece of how I thought about that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but those, I feel like those moments can't be happening all the time, but you probably get them sometimes. How do you handle those? Um, how do they so, make you feel? <laughs> so first of all, they are one of the most aggravating parts of teaching. Um, I can deal with students being confused. I can deal with students asking questions. 
uh, and, and the, the term for it that people may or may not have heard, they probably have, but it's been it's been newer, is the idea of inspiration porn. That's it. Yep. Gosh, see, you should have just interrupted me. <laughs> But it's that idea that, like, oh, my God, you function. You're so impressive. Right? Yes. You um, function. Exactly. And it, I had no idea that a blind person could be alive is sort of what I get. Exactly. And that's what it feels. Because it's meant with the best of intentions. And I know that. It's usually people who haven't been exposed to people with disabilities or have been exposed to them in a in a very specific circumstance. And it means that, you know... They think they're doing a, a good thing, you know, like you're out, you're doing it. Some people who are blind are not out and are not doing it, which is absolutely true. Um, the unemployment rate in, in the blind community is horrific. But how I hear it is exactly what you said. Like, good job. You got out of bed, put on pants and are paying your bills. Right. And when you're a person like you who actually works extremely hard and is extremely skillful at the things you do, it sort of feels maybe or I would imagine it would feel like those uh, achievements and those parts of your work as an instructor maybe get overlooked or at least don't get acknowledged the way that they probably should. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's that would be frustrating. I have, you know, I have many teaching flaws and I would so much rather my students talk about all the things they don't like about me than to be like, she's a good teacher for a blind teacher, or which I've gotten in an eval before. In spite of her being oh. blind, she's really good, or she's so inspiring. Uh, inspiring. I bet that's a word that's become a little bit... Uh... Nauseating? Yes. <laughs> yeah, for you. Um, actually, just the other day, I was walking down Lindell and had sort of turned off the path just a little bit, and I, I fixed it and I corrected and everything. I hadn't had any coffee yet. And uh, this this woman very nicely, but uh, she said, you know, that you use that can so well. I'm just I'm so impressed with you for walking. For walking. Okay. Um, and the tough thing about these sort of inspiration porn moments is that, for human decency's sake, and because I don't like conflict, I have to thank people for them. Because that's societally polite. Now I know a lot of folks in my position, um, a lot of other blind folks have chosen to be more outspoken on this topic. And that is fine. I just personally, I don't like conflict. I don't like to start things because that's who I am. I'm Minnesotan. <laughs> we don't do that. Um, <laughs> we passive aggressively complain about strangers on podcasts instead. Um, <laughs> but so I, I have to thank them for these compliments, which is difficult, not even because I'm upset, which I usually am, but because takes away the teachable moment right and it seems like people aren't even aware that they could learn something other than just that hey blind people go about their daily lives successfully hey that's cool mm -hmm. <laughs> they could actually get more out of an encounter than what they're you know letting right. themselves right and i i would i would like that um because i want i want people to understand the fact that you know the fact that i'm at work it's a big deal because I'm a disaster in the mornings and I wake up late and, you know, can't function without caffeine and didn't give myself enough time to make coffee. Or, you know, I... That's the story of my life. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's every graduate student. <laughs> um, or, you know, I, I, it's impressive that I'm here because I, I, you know, didn't do my laundry and couldn't find clothes and now I did and here I am. It's not impressive that I'm here because I can't see. There are... in. There are things in my life that, like, I'll take it. Like, yeah, doing this without being able to see is extra challenging. And that's 
you know, thanks for acknowledging that. But many things are not blindness related. Right. You know, my my challenges are often not blindness related at all. You know, being being an introvert with generalized anxiety makes my teaching a lot more difficult than my blindness. Right. And actually, that was something I wanted to ask you more about as well, um, because I feel I mean, hearing you describe sort of your early childhood and then into now as an adult teaching, it sounds like you've you've been through a lot of, as you said, your eyes have been through a lot of trauma. (laughs) Um, And one thing I think that uh, at least I would like to see graduate students um, trying to do on our campus uh, do do better is um, is have an ongoing dialogue about uh, mental wellness, our Mm -hmm. struggles with, uh, you know, mental disabilities, things like that. And so I know, as you just said, there are other problems that can come into the classroom um, related to disability uh, that have nothing to do with blindness. So people um, in graduate school often suffer from depression, as you said, generalized anxiety, a whole slew of other things. (laughs) There we go. Um, So in your experience, I guess, do you find that it is more, I suppose, I'm trying to find the right word, it's maybe more accepted for you to be vocal or to talk about your physical disability than it is to acknowledge um, the, what we call, invisible disabilities. So I feel like it's a tricky case for me because I wouldn't say even necessarily more accepted, but more expected. Expected, okay. Uh, People see me as a blind instructor, as a blind student. They expect that my biggest problems come from the fact that I can't see. Right. They are surprised and slightly puzzled that the anxiety or even just the introvertedness causes me a lot more difficulties in a very social atmosphere of of teaching in higher education than the blindness thing does. And this may not be true for everybody, but in my own personal, and I feel like that's a disclaimer actually that I should have made at the beginning of this podcast. Your mileage may vary. Um, (laughs) Right. You know, blind people are all individual people. Grad students are all individual people. My experience is my experience alone. Um, We're talking with you today about your experience. So, So, yeah. So I guess I should have also sort of put the disclaimer out. But I I feel like that's a disclaimer that always needs to be there when you talk about disability because we tend to all lump together. Yeah, we generalize. Um, Yeah. Because sometimes generalizing makes us feel some solidarity, but you're absolutely right. It's very important to distinguish individual people. I don't want to invalidate anyone else's experience. Right. But anyway... So, like I said, they they make the assumption that the blindness part is the biggest problem in my life, and it is absolutely not. Um, if I was STEM, that might be different. But as it is, I read books and I write papers. Probably 75% of what I do is pretty easy to manage. Like, the, the time management or, like, the, you know, the amount of time it takes me to get to materials, like, that's, it's annoying, but it's not a massive impediment to my career goals. Right. Uh, the fact that I have to network to get jobs when I have massive social anxiety gets in my way a lot more. The fact that even just walking around campus is sometimes a challenge for me, not because of like the, the walking around with the cane part, but the whole... The big scary golf carts that come out yes, of nowhere and want to run you down? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and things like the fact that because I'm a very anxious person... The second I feel like someone's staring at me or watching me try to do what I'm trying to do, 
uh, I freeze up like a turtle on its back and I'm suddenly unable to function. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which I feel like is a relatively common problem for a lot of people. True. But yeah, so every, people are much more comfortable with the idea that my struggles are all blindness related. Right. That's a good way of putting it, that it's easy for people to acknowledge that as something that they can recognize as a disability, that it must come with impediments or, you know, mm-hmm. they, would have, they have the assumption um, and refuse to consider that you're a human being with, yeah. the, you know, all I'm, of your... I'm a complicated soul. Yes. Um, well, I mean, yes. No, we're all complicated souls, I yes. guess. But. but yeah, no, that's, it's exactly... They're reaching for what's comfortable, for what's visible, for what they think they've been trained to deal with. Right. Uh, which... They generally haven't, but. Right. Um. <laughs> so uh, let me see. Um, there were many things I wanted to ask you about, but um, I know for our rhetoric and composition classes here, there are sort of projects built into um, the syllabus or the mm-hmm. curriculum that involve uh, like multimodal work and things like that. But as far as you approach, um, as far as how you approach your courses um, with technology, integrating technology, is there anything that you think would be useful for the listeners to hear or to consider for their own possible courses maybe? Or Yeah. So for our multimodal projects, um, I actually have taken control over, over those a little bit in my own classes because of the fact that there are certain things I can't evaluate. Right. And I, you know, there are ways that I can probably manage to work with those, but I, I, part of working with, sorry, part of learning how to talk, um, <laughs> part of working with a disability is, you know, it's that whole, like, I have no limitations except, oh, wait, I do. So things like, I am not comfortable trying to grade a video. I'm just not, you know, they can describe to me what they're trying to do, things like that, but it's still, I am not comfortable evaluating that. And so for my classes, like, I have aggressively sort of forced their multimodal projects into podcasts often because a podcast I am comfortable evaluating so that's been the big one is I tend to give my students a little less leeway in what they do that being said though because they don't know why I'm doing it they tend to respond pretty well to being you know strong-armed and manipulated (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and that's part of my strategy is you know just never let them know how I'm messing with them Uh, and they seem to take it pretty well yeah, and I mean, it's not like podcasts are something out of the, you know, realm of ordinary for our multi-mo- multimodal projects anyway, right. so they couldn't be, like, not expecting a podcast. Exactly. It's not some so, strange, bizarre, unheard of thing. I My ideal is to fit within the system that we have and adapt it to my needs. I don't want to do anything drastically differently just because of the disability. Sure. Um, because I don't want to be the blind teacher. I want to, you know... Myself and uh, a couple others in the department are currently involved in running a service learning section of our English 1900. Um, And I would much rather be remembered as, you know, the instructor who helped develop that um, instead of the blind instructor. So, yeah, which is that makes perfect sense. And it's obviously like something that has definitely gone really well so far with the pilot. Oh, can I call them pilot Mm -hmm. runs? Mm -hmm. Um, So I would say that you don't have to worry about that, at least in our (laughs) little, you know, bubble of of at SLU maybe. But um, but that's also something that you will be able to take with you regardless of where you're teaching or what job you're working later in your, you know, down your career path um, trajectory. Uh, It feels like just from hearing how you describe your classes and the different projects that you've developed, that you 
have been honing some skills that will be able to be mapped across you know, a mm -hmm. pretty wide range of possible jobs and careers. So even if you're not, if you don't end up teaching, you've learned how to work with large groups of people in an authoritative way, which is something I <laughs> will struggle with to the end of days. But um, so it seems like what you're doing is something probably that a lot of the graduate student instructors at SLU maybe don't think about as much. They maybe are doing it, just not realizing how kind of um, applicable the skills they're developing are outside of the classroom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So that was a very long <laughs> <laughs> No, that's fine. Comment. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, and I mean, that's, that's what they want us to be doing in graduate school is learning right. these skills. Um, and, you know, I want my students to walk away from them. And to be honest, on the disability front, what I want my students to walk away with, and I realize I'm kind of taking this question in a different direction no, than take you it started, in any direction. but what I want them to walk away with is not like, oh my God, I had a blind teacher and she was so inspiring and so wonderful. And what I want them to walk away with, like, I had a blind teacher, and it was no big deal. And she was sometimes really cool and sometimes really annoying. Uh, you know, she sometimes took three weeks to grade our papers, but sometimes <laughs> she was amazing. Right. Um, and I want the blindness part to be just sort of in the background. I don't want them to forget it because it's there. It's, right. it's a part of who I am, but it's not the part of who, you know, it's not the only part of who I am. Right. Um, and I would like them to have come away with a positive experience, not so much as like an I'm an ambassador situation, but right. um, having a very sort of normalized encounter with someone with a disability, because I feel like that's something we are missing and which is a big cause for all of the inspiration porn. Oh, absolutely. Is a lack of exposure. Yeah, I think that's absolutely, absolutely um, true. You know, if you, you know, the next time the people, the grad students at SLU who sort of have gotten to know me over the couple of years, like the next time they run into a blind person, their first response is probably not going to be to be totally freaked out and to tell them how inspiring they are for putting on shoes. Um, <laughs> at least I hope. Otherwise, I haven't done my job. Um, <laughs> you know, but, I don't think any of us are going to be. We've been listening. Right. But it, you know, <laughs> it, but it normalizes the encounters and it makes every good encounter you have. And I'm not talking just always positive, but every, you know, sort of well-maneuvered encounter that you have makes the next one a little bit easier on both parties. Um, you know, you've, You've had the chance to ask some questions. I've had the chance to sort of show you how some, how some things work. We have learned how to interact with each other. Um, I have learned that I am terrible at captioning GIFs. <laughs> um, when we text each other, I always try, not always successfully, but I always try to caption things when it's an image of any kind, which is something I've now begun to sort of obsess over because of how poorly I, I feel like I'm doing it. Um, I had a couple of kind of just little uh, grab bag questions kind of related to that. Like, I, I feel like people might be interested to hear, yeah, like, can... what, what do emojis, like, when they appear in text messages, uh, what do those get um, rendered as for you? Uh, so depending on the emoji, they actually get described by the phone, because um, I do a lot of my stuff, obviously, on my phone. Um, depend, they get described. Sometimes the way that society interprets them is not the way the phone interprets them. Yes, absolutely. Because uh, I've actually seen the titles for at least the sort of face, you know, the smileys and such. Yeah, so like <laughs> some of the screaming faces, things like that. Uh, right. They, the, the, the laugh crying is a pretty, like, reliable, like, you yeah. know, I bet that one just says laugh crying emoji. Or something. Uh, it's like face crying tears of joy or something like that. That is a different so. type of thing, though, tears of joy. Because I know there's one that I tend to use that I don't think, I think it's called like the grimace face, how I use it as sort of, you know, the fake smile face. Mm -hmm. So I feel like at least sometimes what I have said or sent to you has certainly not 
been interpreted as what I would have wanted it to be yeah. Uh, yeah. read as. But um, and that's you know to to you know. I like talking about this, but I also to keep it related to our larger theme, like that's that's kind of a a, a really good metaphor for <laughs> disability communicating with sort of quote unquote non disability. That wasn't the right kind of sentence, but um, <laughs> but that like your uh, your interpretations may vary, um, right. <laughs> and it may cause interesting uh, interesting communication foibles. Right. Um, one question I had uh, was, this is sort of an, a broader question um, than just about blindness as a disability, but about the term disability in general, because that's obviously a word that um, some people now consider, you know, offensive or inappropriate. Um, I think that differently abled might be the sort of uh, most recent version mm-hmm. of how you'll see that term. But what do you, I mean, we call it disability studies. Um, within our department and within the humanities, um, how do you feel about people trying to phrase things differently to, I don't know, not offend you or to somehow appease um, the community of disability people? Right. So this is a question where I feel like I need to stick in the your mileage may vary disclaimer again. Yes. <laughs> because I am not a super PC person. I actually feel much more uncomfortable when someone tries to do linguistic backflips to sure. not offend me than yeah. if they just... Now, there, there is a fine line. I don't want to be called a handicapped person. I don't even really want to be called a disabled person. But something like a person with a disability. That doesn't bug me. Right. Um, and that's person first language. Yeah, uh, I was just going to say, because it's not describing you as the disabled person, but you're a human being. Yes. Like this other I'm, thing afterward. <laughs> I am a now, human being with brown hair. I'm a human right. being with disability. Now that being said, like, I will sometimes take like the blind woman because it's just it fits better in a sentence than like the woman who is blind. But that's just purely a, a sentence structure thing. But overall, like I said, the big thing is, so here's here's my thing, though. Handicapped is out. Anyone right. anyone listening to this, handicapped is out. Don't call anyone handicapped. Just don't do it. You heard uh, it here, not first, because this has been a thing, but now you heard it. It's not. I know, I know we confuse it because we call them handicapped stalls and handicapped parking spaces. We just don't have a good replacement term for it. But if you're listening, don't do it. It's done. Um, it seems like some places have sort of successfully taken up accessibility as the better way of yes. calling like a stall or um, yes. entrances to buildings and things like that. And that's the thing that's pause. It's, and I'm not even saying in like a, in a don't offend way, but access is a much more proactive term. Oh, right. It has, it doesn't have those connotations of, you know, 19th century people with disabilities sitting in a, in a, in an asylum kind of situation. It, right. It gives agency to the people who have to use the material uh, or the space. Precisely. And that's, that's, that's a big thing. It's, it's the idea of agency. A person with a disability lets me be that person first, not someone whose disability is being inflicted on them. When we get into things like, you know, differently abled and things like that, I don't care for that personally. Like, please, I, I don't want to be called that. That also seems to apply to literally every person on the globe. Like, we're all differently abled because that just means different exactly. from the other person and this person, you know. And I, I feel like the terms in disability studies are about to sort of hit some rocky patches, similar to the debates that have gone on for the last couple years over the term queer ah. uh, in academia. Sure. You know, the does it mean LGBT? Does it mean anyone who is sort of outside of the normative experience. Right. And um, has it lost kind of its meaningful effect at this point because of all of these? Right. And different... do, do we want it to regain 
its old meanings or right. not. Um, so I, I feel like there's some disability terms that are sort of headed for that shakeup at some point. Now, I, on purpose, am not a disability studies person. Um, I'm interested in it. I had a really cool moment at the end of undergrad where I discovered that there were disability studies in medieval studies, and I thought that was super cool. But I very actively avoided for a very long time any association with the field because I never wanted it to be, well, she's blind. Of course she does disability studies. Right. I know what you mean. The conference I um, attended a couple of weeks ago, I was sitting on a session and the one of the panelists' presentation um, had to do with a series of poems that described... Um, well, they were all women. It was basically a binder full of women, um, <laughs> but from like the 17th century and in Italian. But uh, and it was describing all these women. Each of them was defined by um, a defect, so to speak. So either they had a limp, maybe, or they hadn't had an arm chopped off in a in an accident. I don't know. Um, there were like 30 of them, so the the range was pretty um, extensive. But but I brought up, you know, during the Q and A, I asked if she had ever considered um, an approach, sort of taking disability studies um, to the forefront and looking at this um, this particular text from that angle. And she said, you know, no. And her response basically said that because she is not a disabled person and that she is, you know, looking at these texts without that personal experience, that that hadn't ever occurred to her, that she didn't think she might be very, like, that she wouldn't be the person to do that, I suppose. Um, you know, and I didn't challenge that because this is a Q&A to conference. But, mm -hmm. um, but I do feel that there is sort of maybe what you're describing um, from the other side and from what you're describing from your side um, where people don't think that they are the right person to take up disability studies. But then it's like we don't study things that we live every day because that would be boring yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we wouldn't it. learn a whole lot probably at some point yeah and there and there are some people with disabilities who love disability studies right um and who are really interested in that theory but i was i was always very actively interested in sort of distancing myself from the like well of course links right um, exactly it doesn't seem like you would need to be disabled to study or to work with disability studies at all and it doesn't seem no. like you should be expected to no for now, any reason. <laughs> now, the older I've gotten and the further I've moved into academia, the more I've started doing things like this podcast. Or I, I had a conversation, uh, I gave a paper at uh, Kalamazoo, which for those of you listening who don't know, is the National Medievalist Conference in the U.S. I did give a paper on sort of the accessibility problems in manuscript studies. Because the more I encounter these things that have been an impediment to me, the more I do feel like it is my sort of duty to talk about them. Right. And really, that's a problem that, as far as manuscript studies goes, at least, we're all struggling with the fact that, you know, digitiz digitization is a slow and ongoing process. But for most of us, we can just find the image, maybe, or we can request and pay for it. And there it is. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole, there's a whole other level of finding and reading and being able to access it um, yeah. that yep. we don't think about that I think is really important to make sure people are being um, reminded of yes. often. So I think you did it. I remember that paper or the presentation at Kalamazoo. But yeah, and I mean, and that's a big part, like you said, everyone's struggling with a lot of the similar parts of that. And so that's my interest in bringing disability studies into the forefront is not to make it its own separate thing. I don't want to have my own playground. I just want to be able to play on <laughs> your <do>. playground. <laughs> I don't want anyone to play on my playground. <laughs> but I, I want to 
I want to have a seat at the table essentially. I don't I don't need my own separate space. I just want to be allowed into into the collective academic space. I feel like that is a totally <laughs> we we should all be able to just say that and yes, we like that should not be up for debate, right? Exactly. Like I, <laughs> and I feel like there's no one who doesn't or there's not many people who don't want that in some form or another. Right. So. And, and really, we all, in our own ways, struggle to feel like we're being accepted, especially as um, graduate students and early career scholars. There's always the feeling of, you know, do I belong here? How do I make people believe that I sh- you know, do belong here? And so I feel like trying to foster environments that are welcoming and accepting and accommodating to everyone not in any kind of infantilizing way, as you described earlier, but just as a principle, like, let's just be nice and kind and, <laughs> and welcoming, and then maybe that would go great for everyone. And, <laughs> and we've made a lot of concerted efforts in academia recently, and yes. we can discuss their successfulness or not, but at sort of accommodating sort of that, you know, bringing a seat to the table for, uh, for gender, you know, people with different, different genders, uh, different races, things like that. There's been a very publicized effort to make that space at the table for those marginalized groups. You see that less for disability studies or just people with disabilities. Absolutely. And And not even because, like, they're being purposefully excluded. But because they're not being thought of at all, which is worse, I think. Yeah. (laughs) In some ways. Yeah. So, like, the, the idea of diversity, you know, of making space for people, it's like, oh, well, you don't, like, oh, you need space? Yes, yes, I do. Thank you. Yeah, so we... While diversity in all of those other places is great and absolutely necessary, it is a problem in the in the disability community is that, like you said, it's not that we're being sent away. It's that we're just not being considered. Right. Which does... Because we don't fit under the big banners of diversity. Right. Or not in the way people are accustomed to right. seeing or thinking about those banners, at least. Right. So I guess moving forward, that'll be something that we can all try yes. to work on. Yeah. We... Because, like I said, that's... It's... It's frustrating when we're having all these talks about inclusivity right, and right. all these debates about, you know, physical spaces and academic spaces for all of these groups that absolutely need them. But but not at the sacrifice it's, of... Right. <laughs> it's frustrating to be an af- a constant afterthought. Right. And, you know, we always talk about how, you know, oh, it's not my job to educate people. It's their job to educate themselves. Uh, I have mixed feelings on that, but... It also is annoying to have to be the one in the crowd always standing up and saying, like, hey, hey, me, back here, look, I'm here. No let me, kidding. Let me talk. Uh, let me let me be a part of this. Make space for me the same way you're making space for everybody else. Right. Uh, I would also like our listeners to know that I can't stop gesticulating. Uh, and even though we are not being video recorded, <laughs> that was completed with a lot of flailing and arms in the air. Because um, I, apparently I just can't control myself. But um. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very important issue, and I feel like probably a good place for us to wrap up. It's a good mm-hmm. note for people to sort of for us to leave mm-hmm. off with. Anessa, thank you for this really informative and wonderful conversation. I hope that our listeners have learned as much as I feel like I've learned. Yeah, this was um, great. I liked the chance to sort of speak on these issues because, again, I think these are a lot of things that people have heard alluded to but have never really gotten a, a full-on conversation about. I think that's probably right. Um, I would like to sort of put in a pitch here at the end. Um, it is a, it's a fledgling venture, but um, I've been working on sort of publicizing some of these experiences online. So should you choose to follow uh, something, we're going to be sort of developing this as I go. Um, I, run, I do run a blog, um, which I created while I was actually adjuncting, and it's called adjunctinthedark.com. 
and it's a lot of it's sort of changing its identity right now uh, because I'm I'm sort of waking it up from the dead. But it it is a lot of those disabled experiences in academia in teaching, um, partic- in particular and in grad school. So so again, that was adjunctinthedark.com. Mm-hmm. I've seen it. I would highly recommend everyone go check it out. Um, even while it's in flux, I suppose, or maybe yes, you can put please. up one of those in under construction. <laughs> you know, like the I mean, old. It, it's awake and everything. It's just the content is a little bit old. But stay tuned for yes. new content. <laughs> yes, please stay tuned. Please check it out uh, because these conversations don't go anywhere until we until we make them. So, yes, excellent. All right, all right, and outro music. <laughs> If you'd like to get involved in this podcast series, to share an assignment, tool, or even to pitch an interview, please contact me, Byron Gilman Hernandez at byron.gilmanhernandez at slu.edu. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina.